just got a, a short clip we're going to have a look at. If you want to face the screen now, we'll get started. Yeah, this is our second out of four weeks we're going to be looking at the parable. Small story, big idea. If you've got a Bible with you, I'd love it if you could turn to Luke chapter 10. I believe this story that we're going to look at has is, is had a huge, huge impact upon the world. And you might say that's a big claim. We're going to be looking at the parable of the Good Samaritan. The Samaritans, you've probably heard of the organization, was founded in 1953 by a London vicar following a young girl's funeral. In 2007, they had over 5 million requests for help. Why was it named? It was named after this. I don't know how many of you are aware of something called the Samaritan's Purse, started in 1970. It now works in over 100 countries as a humanitarian organization. Why? I would say it, was, it came out of this story. The Samaritan Befrienders in Hong Kong was the first ever organization in Asia to specifically target supporting those with suicidal tendencies. Why? I believe it's the small story with the big idea. In fact, in some countries, they even have what's known as Good Samaritan laws. But the idea behind this is, it's your duty to help out other people when you can. You know, don't withhold the good help that you could do. And I would say that whole thing has come from this story that Jesus told. So I'm going to read to you from Luke chapter 10, verse 25, and I'm going to go through to verse 37. 25 to 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, this is the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road and when he saw him he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite when he came to the place and saw him passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan as he journeyed came to where he was and when he saw him he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. 
And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. I feel I need to pray. I'm standing awe of a guy called John Piper, who's a great preacher in the States. And he said this, ten sermons could be preached on ten different issues out of this one parable. Father, we ask for help. Jesus, we do believe that this was a small story with a big idea. And we want to hear the one that you want to communicate to us this morning. I pray now for each one of us that we know your spirit. Take these words and, and apply them into our hearts. It'll be something that we don't just listen, but we live by. Amen. Just a quick little bit of background. I don't really want to go into the whole dialogue right at the outset. I don't want to ignore it, but I really am on about the story this morning. A lawyer probably was a priest. So it's, it's worth getting that one into our mind. They were the ones that understood the law. They worked in the temple. So when it says a lawyer came, it could well have meant a priest came and asked Jesus. I don't want to read too much into it in terms of questioning. What I do find fascinating is that Jesus sort of comes straight back to him on something he would have understood. You know, it's like now if you ask Jesus a, que- a question and he answered by saying, what's that written on your T-shirt? You see, they think that the lawyers could well have had scripture bound upon them because they took it so seriously. And it's almost like Jesus is like, I understand and I want to connect right where you are. I think it's great this morning, hasn't it? Jesus wants to speak into us in whatever we're doing, whether it's looking after little children, whether it's being retired, whether it's going to work. Jesus wants to be there speaking with us. We know that the Bible is so important. Uh, He answers with two scriptures. If you're interested, it's Deuteronomy 6 verse 5, which says you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And also Leviticus 19 where it says, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So in some respect, I would say that's very brief. That's really how the story came about. This guy goes and asks Jesus a question. He tries to pick up and thinks, oh, priest, understand the scripture. Ask him a question about scripture, returns on that. And then he comes back with another question. So who is my neighbor? And that's the story that we get to. I counted up this week, and you think, golly, Pete, is that what you do? There are only seven sentences in this story. Talk about a small story and a big idea. And in some respect, I feel that there's a a pattern that emerges, and we're just going to have a quick look at it. Firstly, this, the robbers steal and injure. We know it was a dangerous path. Uh, uh, Many commentators would agree it was about an 18-mile trip it was quite high up in Jerusalem, low down in Jericho. So over 18 miles, you were, cool, you were sort of scrambling down. In fact, it was probably the height of Snowdon. If ever you've climbed Snowdon, that was the kind of distance that they dropped, about 3,000 feet over this trip. We know that in the 5th century, this trip was still known as the Bloody Way. And in the 19th century, you still had to pay people to be safe on it. So it was nationally known as this dangerous thing. I guess, though, if I wanted to understand what was it like for us, it would be, be a bit like you walking through the middle of a rough 
London estate, loaded up with cash, and everyone can see it on your own, no mobile phone. You know, it's almost Jesus saying, just imagine this kind of situation. You know what I'm saying? Cash everywhere. And just suddenly, how would you feel? That was, that was the kind of thing. I'll tell you what I do find really interesting, though. Almost as an aside, we don't know who the man was. People have assumed that he was Jewish, but we don't know that. And I think the reason we don't know this is because Jesus is saying the need is more important than the nationality. And I think that we've got to remember that when we live in Ealing, which has got 172 different nationalities living in it. Because sometimes we can think, oh, well, you know, who is it? What kind of person is it? Should I help? I think if you look at the story of the Good Samaritan, the need was the most important thing, not, well, actually, he is a Jew, and therefore you should have helped him. What we do know is it was probably a violent attack. It's funny, Scripture doesn't give us the details of this, does it? I'm sure if it was a Hollywood film now, you know, there'd be a couple of kicks, there'd be a couple of throws, wouldn't there? they'd land on some china somewhere just because it smashes, they'd throw somebody through a window just to make some kind of scene. We don't get that. But the fact that he was so badly beaten up means he probably tried to defend himself. Most commentators would agree upon that. So it was violent, literally left half dead. It's funny because I was going to put up a picture today. I thought, oh, does the picture help? Does it help you connect more? But every picture that I could find on the internet always had a nice, clean-looking person sort of sleeping on the floor. You know, and I guess you don't want a naked man up at church, do you? But I think it was probably sort of like that, wasn't it? There wasn't necessarily a loincloth laid in the appropriate place. I mean, he was being bruised and beaten and bloody and a mess. Now I want to ask us a question. Do we see those in need around us? Are we aware of those that are hurt local to us? Are we aware of refugees, asylum seekers? Are we aware of those in debt? Those on drugs, suffering from domestic violence? See, I think that Jesus, the first sentence is, look, there was this robber that it had, and these people are injured, this person's injured. I think there are people around us like that today. What's the second sentence? The priest sees and does nothing. Now you think about it, we know that the priest was a descendant of Aaron. Aaron was the brother of Moses, and so basically they would be, they would be considered the priest. In fact, if you couldn't trace your ancestors back to Aaron, you weren't allowed to be a priest. I guess the challenge there is, he thought his pedigree was enough. And not necessarily his action. He wasn't doing a lot, but he was relying upon maybe what well, I can trace this. I jokingly used to say, I mean, I was raised in a, in a Baptist church. I've mentioned this many times before. I've got two brothers. We all went to church as kids. And uh, my, my, my granddad used to come and preach in the church. And my other granddad went to a different church. And my uncles and aunts all went to church. And people say, golly, your family, there's so many Christians. And I used to say, we can trace our ancestors back to Jesus. You know, it's almost like, oh, I've got all these different connections or whatever. But actually, it's irrelevant, isn't it? People often say, God has no grandchildren, he's only got children. You know, my kids got to make their own decision. And there's almost this thing, if you cannot rely upon our past or our pedigree, it's actually, what about us? 
We know this, and I think it's quite an important little fact in the story. We know that he was traveling away from Jerusalem. Some people have suggested that the priest didn't get involved because if you touch the dead body as a priest, he wouldn't be able to serve. Or if he tried to serve in the temple, having touched the dead body, he brought judgment upon himself. But he wasn't going to the temple. In fact, a lot of the priests were quite well off, and so they used to go up to Jerusalem, do a two-week two duty, and then return to Jericho, which is where they lived. So in all probability, he's just finished at the temple, and he's going back. Therefore, what this would suggest to me is that he didn't get involved because it was inconvenient rather than illegal. It wasn't, well, he couldn't get involved as a priest. It was rather, God, because if he touched the dead body, and the guy hadn't died, but looking at him, you might have thought he's about to. What he should really have done then, he's gone back to Jerusalem to then make himself ceremonially clean. Well, that could take him a week. And I guess his missus at home, I don't know if priests had missus, I'm adding this little one in, you know what I'm saying? Might think, golly, why have you taken so long? So it was inconvenient for him. J.C. Ra, one author that I read on this week, said he was too selfish, too unfeeling to offer the slightest assistance. So I then get challenged. Am I like the priest? So I not buy the big issue because I can't be bothered to stop because I'm running for the train? Am I so busy doing life that I don't need to stop and look at other people? The story goes on. Sentence number three. The Levite sees and does nothing. Now we know again that he was of the tribe of Levi. We know that Levites assisted priests. I found it very interesting when you think about this. It could well have been that he was the assistant of the priest who'd gone ahead. One commentator said, I never really thought like that. And so almost in his head, it's like he'd come across this person and you think, hang on. Boss didn't stop, then why should I? This would be a bit, it could be a little bit embarrassing, really, couldn't it? Because what happens if he helps out and then he turns up at the town and he's got this, and, and the boss says, Don't you understand the law? What on earth were you doing touching him? I mean, I went, Ask, what, why did you stop? And it's almost, you can feel a little bit like this, this Levite thinking, God, the peer pressure is don't get involved. Other people have not done it. Maybe he was so concerned about what the boss would say or what the image would be like that actually he left it. He felt intimidated. Is that true of us? Do we think, well, other people aren't doing anything? I I mean, Pete, he's a church leader. If he's not done anything, well, that excuses me. Oh, well, I, I would do something, but I know so many other Christians that don't do anything. And then the story changes. Sentence number four. It's literally a seven-sentence story. The Samaritan sees and shows compassion. Now, you've got to understand that this would have been shocking. We know the story. I mean, like I say, it impacts the world. So many people are aware of it. We think, oh, Samaritan. You know, I could imagine them going, a Samaritan? Because if you told this kind of story in Jesus' day, you would have expected a priest, a Levite, and a layman. You'd have expected what we might have called a deacon to be the third person in the story. When Jesus suddenly pulls the Samaritan, what on earth is he talking about? There would have been gasps. You've got to remember the Jews would not offer the Samaritans a drink of water. That's how they felt about them. And yet this Samaritan, I mean, I find it amazing. He comes along the road, 
He doesn't question the traveller. Oh, I mean, sometimes I think, God, if I took something away, would it be that? He doesn't question the traveller. Why were you on your own? (laughs) That's a bit of a silly thing to be doing, isn't it? He helps. And I think so often, I think I'm not even like the Samaritan because I I want to understand why. I, I feel I've got some questions that need answering. His compassion led to action. I think if you remember last week and... You know, John, these stories, I'm going to look at four stories. They're all from Luke. And, and Luke, if you want to understand him in one sentence, basically says this. Hearing is understanding in doing. Basically, uh, don't just listen to it. Get on and do it. You know, in fact, if you really want to say you're a Christian, it's don't just get inspired by this or the songs or, or what we've done here. It's we've got to live it. And so it's almost like, you know, the Samaritan is this great example. Does compassion move you? What do I mean by that? How often, I, 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 just, I make a little confession here. I watch something on the news and I get all teary. I think, man, that's unbelievable. And by the time I've watched the weather, I just feel sorry for myself. I, think, I can't believe it's raining again. You know, it's almost like I've got that much compassion. You know, for 10 minutes, I've moved. By then, I'm suddenly feeling sorry for myself, and I'm not necessarily doing anything about it. You see, this guy, his compassion moved him. Sentence number five, he went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. His wounds are treated. Now, I'm skipping through this at a fair rate. I know you know the story. They say that wine was used to clean wounds. Some of you are thinking... I, I, I struggle cooking with it. You know, most people just want to drink it. I mean, pour it on someone that's injured. It was meant to be a sort of medical thing. Oil was the ointment. They reckon that they bound him first, because some people question that, because it was such a deep wound, to have poured it straight on would have been absolute agony. What I think is, he was dealing where the Levite had failed. The Levite could have helped, but he chose not to. Now, I appreciate that it's much better to give somebody a hand up rather than a hand out. I appreciate the, the slogan that it's better to teach someone to fish than give them a fish for a day. But I think also that some people are in such a need, they do need immediate help. And so I sometimes think, well, what immediate help could we give to people? What is there that you suddenly think, hey, there's somebody local that we could just offer to help? Now, I know, you know, I think that even with the night shelter. Ultimately, I'd much rather, you know, they were, they were helped to get a job and they were helped to get some permanent, but actually, when it's cold in January, they might just need somewhere to sleep for the night. Wounds treated. Sentence number six, he was transported. They set him on his animal, brought him to the place. I think here, the Samaritan is making up for the failure of the priest. Why do I say that? Because the priest was rich. It doesn't actually tell us in the story, but they were so rich, it was unlikely that the priest would have walked. The priest probably had their own animal. Therefore, the priest could have helped to transport him, but didn't. And it's almost like the Samaritans making up for the failure of the Levite and the failure of the priest. I love that. I work, some of you know, out of a church in Catford that's supporting, it's called Kings. 
they have five houses for the homeless. Because actually they want to help them. Oh, journey. It's almost like we're going to help them get established, help them with disciplines, help them get some benefits, help them hopefully get work and step on. It's not meant to be an end in itself, but it's almost like we're going to transport them into a better place. I'd like to think as a church that we get involved in that. That actually we can immediately help somebody's need, but we can also help them on the longer journey. The final sentence, money is spent on him. And the next day he took out two denarii, gave it to the innkeeper. I find it wonderful. It's almost like Jesus was saying he was robbed and he lost his money, but it's now being restored. Now, if you're anything like me, I think, what's two denarii worth? And people aren't really sure. I mean, one commentator said this, which I like because I quite like the big and the extravagant. They reckon it would have covered his board and lodging for two months, whereas someone else said they thought it could have been two weeks. What I can say is this, it wasn't one night. You see, the Samaritan did more than the minimum. He did more than he could have got away with. He did more than the moral obligation He went overboard. He was extravagant. He was generous. And again, I think, well, surely this has got to be a message to us as Christians, hasn't it? I'd hate them to think, oh, the church there, they just do the bare minimum. I'd like them to think, God, it's just a bit extravagant. It's a bit over the top. But that's what it was like. The Samaritan, I was thinking about this, he did this at great personal cost. Okay, so I admit, you know, when I was a kid, the films I used to like to watch were Cowboys and Indians. And so I was thinking about the Good Samaritan and Cowboys and Indians. Just imagine it, if you've ever seen a Western, you know, you've got this fort where all the cowboys live. And in comes an Indian on a horse with a cowboy with two arrows stuck out of his back, rides to the fort, says to them, hey, I need somewhere for this guy to stay. And by the way, I'll pay for him, and I'll come back in a couple of months' time, and if there's any more, I'll pay you more. I mean, what do you think the town would have done to him? <laughs> I think you deserve lynching. I think it would have been a personal risk to take him into the town, wouldn't it? Well, I wonder where this town was the Samaritan took him. Was it a Jewish town? I mean, would it have been just horrendous the fact he went in there? And they're saying, what? He's been beaten up? You're our enemy? Did you do it? Can you see? It's almost like personal cost, personal reputation. You could almost say he was putting his own life on the line to generously help this individual. I think that this story paints that that bigger picture. Martin Luther King, we all know of, of him, don't we? I have a dream kind of fame. He actually took this. And said this, this, he said, on the one hand, we're called to play the good Samaritan on life's roadside. But that will only be the initial act. One day we must come to see the whole Jericho Road must be transformed so that men and women will not be constantly beaten and robbed as they make their journey on life's highway. True compassion is more than flinging a coin to a beggar. It's not haphazard and superficial. It comes to see that an edifice which produces beggars needs restructuring. He was saying, actually, come on, we've got to be those that, that think bigger. He was painting this dream of thinking bigger. So I think that's a very powerful story, don't you? I think this is a small story with a big idea. I think there's one key thing. 
See, we've got seven things here. It was a Jewish way of telling stories that often, in a, something like this, you'd have a structure which meant it would point into the main thing and point out, which goes like this. You can see that the structure of the story would have gone something like this on a seven-sentence story in Jewish history, which means the main point, the Samaritan season shows compassion. The robbers still return. The priest does nothing. We get him transported. The Levite season does nothing. His wounds are treated. Jesus would therefore say, actually, if you really want to grab the point, what is the key of this is compassion. I would dare to suggest this. Jesus does not answer, who is my neighbor? But ask the question, what kind of person are you? You think about that. The lawyer says, who's my neighbor? Does he answer it? Or does he say, well, what kind of person are you? You see, if you think about this small story with the big idea, we do not know what kind of man is dying but we do look at what kind of man is walking by. And I think that's the challenge of it. Jesus taught that we are to love our enemies. Luke 6, 27. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other one. The one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic. Give to everyone who begs from you. And for the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. Luke 6. Matthew Henry, one of the commentators you may well have heard of, says this. It's the duty of every one of us to sustain, help, and relieve all who are in distress. We know that the Samaritan was moved by compassion. We know that he bandaged him. We poured oil and wine on. He puts him on his donkey. He carries him to the inn. He has this running tab almost. I will pay. William Bark. Barclay, another commentator some of you may well have heard of, says you will be judged not by the creed that you hold, but the life that you live. So it's not what I can do. Oh, I say I'm a Christian. But it's the life that you live. John Piper, I read his sermon this week on Luke 10, and he says this, a heart of compassion leads leading to hands-on, messy, sacrificial, time-consuming, stressful action. A heart of compassion leads to hands-on, messy, sacrificial, time-consuming, stressful action. Have you got a heart of compassion? Have I got a heart of compassion? In Ezekiel, I quoted Ezekiel quite a bit last week, tried to give an overview It says this, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. It's almost like, actually, I'm bringing this soft heart. I think something of us knowing that God so loved us that he would die for us surely means we have a heart of compassion. I know we can't help everywhere and everyone, but we could help somewhere and someone. I'm not saying the night shelter's for everyone. But I think, oh, surely I'd love the DNA of our churches that we are doing something for someone. So I'd love to say that was it. That's the story. But I I just want to be true to you and and ask two other things about this story before we move on. And then we'll finish. 
One was this. What was the question that was asked of Jesus? The lawyer was trying to justify himself. He wanted to make himself look good. He comes asking questions. I mean, I haven't got time. I've run out of time this morning. Matthew Henry says, do you come to church to listen or test the preacher? I will preach on that one this morning, but unfortunately I can't. You see, if you think about the question of the lawyer, it didn't make sense. What did he say? What do I do to inherit eternal life? Well, you only inherit something if you're a family or a friend. So how can you do something to inherit? It's a nonsense, isn't it? How can I earn? You know what I'm saying? Because either I'm, I'm in the family and I'll inherit or I'm a friend. But he comes and says, what could I do to inherit? Leon Morris, another commentator I've read, says, this lawyer has no idea of divine grace. So what he's doing is he's coming to Jesus and actually saying, what can I do to earn the kingdom? He thinks, what a stupid question, doesn't he? If you try and achieve your salvation through being right with God by your actions, you will never make it. I'd love to dive into Romans 7, but I haven't got time. Romans 7, 13 to 20 says, actually, the law points out you know, what you could do, but you can't do it. It's almost like the lawyer coming to Jesus and saying, well, look, I'm a good guy. What can I do? And Jesus says, see that fence there? A thousand foot. Jump over it and you get eternal life. <laughs> the lawyer says, what, shall I wear trainers? I mean, it's impossible. You know what I'm saying? That surely is if we understood the question, it's totally impossible. It's a bit like, you know, and, and, and even the, the picture of the Samaritan and the Jew. And we just say, oh, Samaritan and Jew, yeah. It's a bit like an Irish Republican loving someone who's in the orange order. You know what I'm saying? You just think, man, alive, they're still struggling to keep them apart. It's a bit like a white colonialist loving a black freedom fighter, but not one, all of them. I mean, it's just total extremes. This is where the question comes. What can I do? You can't do anything. That's why we love celebrating this. That's why it's great, isn't it? Dan comes. We don't get to God because of what we've done. You see, I think otherwise the danger becomes that we take the story and it just becomes morality, doesn't it? You walk away from this week and you think, oh, golly, pizza, what a big issue. Oh, golly, a couple of quid in my pocket. If you why? Because I'm doing something. I'm not saying that you shouldn't buy Do. But it's not how you get to heaven. He asked the question, how do I do it to... In, in, to Inherit eternal life. Our danger is that people say, I think God let me in because I've done good things. And they've misunderstood the story. That was the question. So let me end on this. Where's Jesus in this whole thing? Now I know you can say, Pete, he told the story. That's not a difficult question. But all scripture, I believe, points to Jesus. Now I have to be very careful here because this is a classic parable that has been over-allegorized. And so some people are very nervous about it. I read uh, one guy, an early church father, who said the man was Adam. I don't quite know how he understood that, but he did. He said, and actually, Jerusalem was paradise, and Jericho was earth. And obviously, Adam was passing from paradise to earth. And the robots were hostile powers, and, and the priests represents the law, and the Levites represent the prophets, and the wounds represent disobedience. The inn represents the church, and the Samaritan returning represents the second coming of Christ. I can't personally go down that line. 
But what I do believe is that it will point to Jesus. I don't want to contrive and, and twist that, but what I can clearly take from something like this is all mankind is under the power and the curse of sin. No one else can or will rescue us. He came to where we are and by his own expense paid with his blood in advance extravagant love that we could be set free. You see, even the little details, he left a running tab. Do you know in those days, if you couldn't pay your hotel bill, there wasn't a credit card, you were made a slave. You had to clear your debt. And I just think there's this picture here of Jesus. He pays for us, not that we have to become a slave to the devil. We're brought by his blood. And there's this running tab that says, I cover. And I think, I can't understand that. And so I do believe that this parable should stir us to be full of compassion. But actually, it stirs me to be full of compassion because he died for me. And when I was lost in my sin, he died for me. And and when I was caught in a pit, he redeemed me. He paid the price I couldn't pay. And so to me, surely one of the, the, the... Big ideas from this small seven-sentence story is this. Yet we need to be a people of compassion, but we could never earn our right standing before him. Instead, he came and paid. And surely we're forever grateful, aren't we? I don't want you to walk out the door and think, golly, what have I got to do? Well, I know Nairi, she's involved in this kind of stuff. I'll have a quiet word with her. I know Dan might you know, have some insight. And that's it. I'd love you to first and foremost walk out the door and think, Jesus, that you would rescue me. I mean, we weren't half dead. Ephesians says we were spiritually dead. We had nothing. Satan had robbed it all. But he came. He found us. He literally picked us up in his arms and says, my extravagance is demonstrated by my blood poured out for you. I know that Richard and Keswick are going to lead us in a song. I'd just like us to pray. Let's just take a moment. Thank Jesus for what he's done for us. Jesus, I personally am humbled that you would pay such a price for me. I'm overwhelmed that you would shed your blood for me. I cannot get my head around the price that you would pay for me. I want to say thank you. I know it says in John that it's almost like I only love because I've first been loved by God. I can only show compassion because really I've known it from God. I know I'll never earn your acceptance and forgiveness. I'm already accepted. I'm already forgiven. I pray that we're a really compassionate church because we're just overwhelmed with God's enormous compassion for us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thank you.